Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp, your host today for New Books in History, a channel on New Books Network. I'm here today with uh, Professor Robert Gross. He's actually the James L. and Shirley A. Draper Professor of Early American History Emeritus at the University of Connecticut. We're going to be discussing his uh, The Transcendentalists and Their World, which was published earlier this year. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Gross. Well, thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, so before we dive into the prompts, let's talk a little bit about the striking image on your book. Sure. So what you're going to see when you pick up the book is the text of the title, The Transcendentals in Their World, eloquently at the top of the page uh, on a kind of cream-colored cover. And right under that is a grapevine uh, with with, um, the grapes in um, fruit and then my name. Uh, And I think what might be striking is that if you came to this book knowing a little bit, guessing that Transcendentalist in the World might be about Concord, Massachusetts, you might expect you'd see Walden Pond or you'd see an image of the uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau. In fact, though, you get an image of the grape, which was developed uh, in Concord between 1844 and five and 1855 by a man named Ephraim Wales Bull. And the grape came to be known as the Concord grape. And it was an immense success. The grape represents a big transition in farming and conquered during the, um, this period of time. And I'm sure we'll get into that, but it's meant to be, I think, attractive, evocative, and perhaps provoke your wonder, why not Walden Pond? Why a grape? Thank you. Um, so you wrote uh, The Minimum in Their Worlds, which this uh, book is a pseudo sequel to. Um, between 1775 and 1837 to start, what were the most important for your understand for understanding of the study, the most important changes and continuities in the political economy, cash economy, barter economy, commercial agriculture, and demography of Concord? Um, you know, you may want to address uh, its mill village, the people of color, um, enslaved or free. Okay, so after we get done with that in 45 minutes, <laughs> we'll be on to question number two. Um, but it's a good question to start with for a very simple reason. And that is that many people who write about Emerson and Thoreau or write about Walden think about uh, those intellectuals as reacting to the sudden onslaughts of a new capitalist and industrial economy. And you might think that reading Walden, where Thoreau um, describes the train intruding into his sanctuary in the woods and uh, evokes its possibilities for good and then uh, damns the way in which it is despoiling nature and destroying his solitude. Trouble is, Capitalism didn't begin in the 1840s or 1850s. Um, Capitalism, we might say, came on the first ships with the English settlers. But more importantly, the advances of a capitalist economy, integrating small country towns like Concord into wider markets, came really after the revolution with the establishment of the New Republic starting in the 1790s. 
And that actually caused a kind of challenge for me in, in writing the transcendentalists in their world. I want to connect the writers and the philosophy that they expounded of transcendentalism to changing social circumstances. But how do I deal with the incursions of the railroad and the transformations of farming and crafts and industry when they date way back before the writers ever put um, a pen to paper? So I think we can think of this in a set of stages. With the establishment of the New Republic and going into the 1790s, towns like Concord, uh, not that far from Boston, really about 16, 18 miles, um, are integrated into the metropolitan market. Um, we can see this because there's a kind of price convergence for agricultural goods um, in between Concord and Boston. So people, farmers are starting to bring crops to market. Um, the Charles River Bridge is erected in the mid-1780s. People can travel in more readily to Boston. Um, in addition, of course, the establishment of the new nation means you're, you're having more integrated uh, regional and national markets for the country. Hamilton's funding system makes credit more readily available. Uh, and, as a and then finally, the outbreak of the wars of the French Revolution in Europe gives the United States a key role as um, an exporter of goods to throughout the European market and re-exporter of a lot of goods from elsewhere. Um, as a result, in the 1790s, you see in, in Concord a great burgeoning of crafts in the center of town. You've got clockmakers trained in this um, craft in Boston who come out to the town set up. And they're not just making clocks for uh, a bespoke uh, clientele. They're making them in advertising clocks to be packed up and sold anywhere in the United States. So you've got a kind of entrepreneurialism going on there. And the buildup of what's known as the mill dam in the center of town, um, which um, is populated by foundries, by tanneries, by clockmakers and cabinet makers. Uh, so Concord is experiencing um, not an industrial revolution so much as a great expansion of crafts and to some degree a use of water power. Um, you also see a good deal of farm production to take advantage of the expanding markets in the West Indies and elsewhere. Um, by the early 1800s, Concord is filling up with slaughterhouses and tanneries. So it must have stunk in the center of town. Um, so now jump ahead, the war of 18, first you get the embargo of 1807, the war of 1812, uh, initially uh, introduced 1807 embargo by Jefferson in hopes of avoiding entanglement in Europe's wars. That obviously doesn't happen. We go to war in 1812. And the effects of those two um, political uh, actions is to foster industrial activity. Um, since now American manufacturers can come out with products that don't have to compete with British and European imports. We see this happen in two ways in Concord. First, in 1807-1808, in the western part of town along the Assabet River, a couple of local entrepreneurs who are millers start um, a textile mill. At first, is producing yarn, 
uh, for, uh, for the market, but will expand by the 1820s into a full-scale cotton factory that will turn out textiles um, in one building in which you start with a bale of cotton and end up at the, um, with uh, sheeting or shirting at the end of the process. So Concord's got its own little industrial revolution going on even before Lowell. At the same time, Concord sees the inauguration of pencil making as a cabinet maker named William Monroe, seeing his market for clocks and fine furniture wrecked, decides to produce something that will have a market in which he can use his handicraft skills. He starts the pencil making business during the War of 1812, does well at it, and then gives it up after the war only to re resume production in the mid 1820s. And he will be followed in this business, imitated in the business, and perhaps ripped off in the business by John Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau's father. So if I can bring this to a point, what you have is a long series of entrepreneurial activities, including, I would add here, the building of numerous bridges across the two rivers in town, um, the straightening of roads and their expansion, the investment in turnpikes, all which point to a great aspiration on the part of farmers and craftsmen of merchants, of tavern keepers, to reach out to wider markets and to profit from um, the growing commercial and ultimately manufacturing revolution. So if you can, please situate uh, David Henry Thoreau's family background within these changes in continuities. You can address that youth bird hunting incident in your book, Ripley, of course, the Constitutional Convention and the uh, Jubilee. So I structure the book into two parts. Part one is called Community and Change. And it's really describing all these different changes that take place in Concord, not just economically, but, but in a wide uh, series of realms of life, of government, of religion, uh, of voluntary associations. Um, and I describe uh, this Community and Change up through the mid-1830s. Um, this is a period before Emerson has really come to live in the town. And when Henry David Thoreau is a boy born in 1817, growing up in Concord, too young to have really left as much in the way of, of manuscripts or to have done anything on a public stage. But, uh, and so then the second half of the book is structured uh, with a look at the transcendentalist interplay with Concord from 1835, 36 on to 1847 or so. In the first part of the book, I structure each of the chapters in relation to Thoreau's family. So that you come to see a lot of the shifts in town through their experience. Um, Henry David Thoreau's family is particularly interesting because on both sides of his uh, mother and father, of looking at the grandparents, he came from real money. His grandfather on his father's side, Jean Thoreau, was an immigrant from the Isle of Jersey, a man of French Protestant Huguenot uh, origins, who comes to uh, the Boston area sometime just before around the revolution. Um, somehow makes money privateering during the Revolutionary War and thrives in business in Boston before moving out to Concord, supposedly for his health. It was, he was 
suffering clearly from tuberculosis. The doctor said you'll do better in the countryside. So he moves out to Concord and unfortunately dies within about a year, um, leaving behind a widow and a number of children who will now have to be raised on the income from uh, the, the legacy, which is put into various investments. On Thoreau's mother's side, he descends from one of the wealthiest, most powerful families in late colonial Massachusetts, the Jones family of Western Massachusetts. And the Joneses own, like uh, Colonel Elisha Jones, owns quite a lot of land, not just in Weston, but in the western part of, of the colony. Um, he's a slaveholder uh, and um, also a major political figure supporting royal government, and he becomes a loyalist. Um, his daughter marries a minister named Mesa Dunbar. She sticks with um, North America and with the emerging United States. Um, but it's a family that's kind of royalist, if not loyalist, in their inclinations. Okay. Henry David Thoreau's father uh, grows up is without his father um, and is put out to trade. And his mother um, grows up with her mother, a widow, who marries in a farmer in Concord who'd once been quasi-loyalists, um, and they moved to Concord in the early 19th century. Um, Cynthia and John Thoreau struggle, but rather than taking you through all the different struggles, let me just give you brief summaries and how this connects. John Thoreau starts out as a merchant, fails as a merchant, and in the mid struggles to find a place for himself, but in the mid-1820s, returns to Concord after trying to make a living in Boston and elsewhere to start pencil making. So he navigates the shift that will um, be the whole economy will be going through from focus on external trade to an emphasis upon manufacturing and internal development. That's the first thing. Second of all, Cynthia Thoreau joins the First Parish Church of Concord, becomes a member in full communion um, in the, around 1810, 1811, uh, shortly before she's to marry John Thoreau. Um, and her family will be caught up, as I'm sure we'll go into, um, the religious conflicts in the town of Concord. Um, the family uh, is interested in Concord's heritage as the town where the revolution begins with the clash of arms on April 19, 1775 at the Old North Bridge, pitting Minutemen against the British regulars. And John Thoreau, though he's only just recently moved back to Concord in 1825, signs petitions saying we ought to celebrate this great uh, patriotic occasion um, and celebrate our role in it. So he's involved enough in town government to sign occasional um, petitions to the uh, selectmen calling for various actions. But John Thoreau, for the most part, is remote from local government. He never holds an office of any sort. He never is on a special committee of the town. He's essentially not much of a model of civic leadership for his kids. Um, at the same time, though, he and his wife, Cynthia, do respond to various reform movements of the day. Cynthia in 1814 uh, joins the Concord Female um, 
Charitable Society in the 1820s. That was founded in 1814 and represents an initiative by which women in the town, especially in the middling and privileged classes, can exercise some um, uh, authority of their own in the public sphere. Uh, John Thoreau joins the Concord Lyceum, but he doesn't join the Concord Social Library, perhaps because you can rent books from the library without having to join. This is a private voluntary collection. Um, he does join the new um, Middlesex uh, Agricultural Society, known as the Society of Middlesex Husbandmen and Manufacturers. What this tells us is that he's oriented toward progress. He puts his um, energy behind um, voluntary associations that are themselves a new initiative in a country town like Concord. Um, and these voluntary societies, the Lyceum, the Agricultural Society, are pressing people to give up the customs of the past, pick up the best practices of the day, respond to the science of the day, and look for progress, even as I might well want to um, retain older forms of social life. The last thing let me mention here is that um, John Thoreau as a merchant has sold liquor. Cynthia Thoreau has grown up um, in the household of her um, uh, mother's um, Cynthia, um, Mary Jones Dunbar, who's been running uh, a tavern in the wake of, first with her husband, Reverend Nathan Dunbar, and then after his death, on her own. So here you've got both Cynthia Thoreau, who's helped sell booze, and John Thoreau doing the same. They become temperance advocates. They also become anti-slavery advocates. So Henry Thoreau basically grows up in a household that is strongly uh, National Republican and Whig, big supporter of Henry Clay, and later of Tippecanoe and Tyler too. They're oriented toward moral reform, but they're also eager for economic progress and new modes of activity. Um, Cynthia, I should add, keeps a boarding house to add to the family income. Both husband and wife are deeply committed to education. John Thoreau, the father, has taught school in Boston. All of their children get enough education to teach schools of their own. Uh, and they're open to the widening horizons of the day. It's a reform-minded, entrepreneurial family. Okay, thank you. Uh, so let's go more into the, uh, let's first go into the church battles. Please discuss the consequences of uh, Ripley's reforms um, and then the roles of the so-called Mrs. Thoreau and their associates in the uh, Trinitarian secession. Um, as well as the difficulties of the new Trinitarian church. Okay, so let me first tell you who Ripley is. So Ripley is Ezra Ripley, who was called to be the pastor of Concord's first parish church in 1778, uh, replacing the deceased Reverend William Emerson, who was the grandfather of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Ripley assumes the pulpit in 1778, and he remains Concord's principal um, minister until 1841. Remember in this regard that Massachusetts maintains um, in its laws 
uh, and in its constitution, a commitment to a religious establishment in every town. That is, every town is required to, to uh, choose to um, a congregation to support the public worship of Christ and to um, hire a minister to keep up the meeting house. Um, and so Ripley is Concord's public Protestant uh, teacher of piety, um, religion, and morality, as the Massachusetts Constitution would describe it. Everybody is required to pay taxes for his support for the upkeep of the meeting house, unless they explicitly signify their desire to sign off and to pay their money to some other congregation. Um, that wasn't always easy to do, as the local officials were eager to get as much money as possible from all the inhabitants to pay for the religious establishment. Ripley takes over the pulpit following the death of Reverend William Emerson, who has expired as a, as a chaplain in a revolutionary um, expedition to Ticonderoga. He never made it there, and his body was ultimately sent back. Ripley comes, he's graduated from Harvard in 1776, and he takes over the pulpit from um, Reverend William Emerson. He also marries the widow, who's about um, uh, almost a, a decade or so older than he, and he moves into the manse, which was uh, Emerson family home, and ultimately come to own it himself. So um, he represents continuity in every respect. And he was a man who cared deeply about community and continuity. In a broad sense, Ripley was both the public Protestant teacher, paid for by the town, and the ambassador of Christ, it was called under Congregationalism, who headed up the local church and oversaw the conduct of, of worship in its sacred form as well as in, in the overall community sense. In Massachusetts Puritanism, you jo could join the church in the 17th and 18th century. You had to apply and you had to meet a wide range of requirements. You would generally have to testify to your um, experience of saving grace. And you would have to speak publicly about how you had come to a sense that you'd been converted by the Holy Spirit. And the existing members of the church would decide uh, whether they found your statement to be authentic or not. You would have to sign the covenant of the church and agree to typically to the Calvinist statement of principles as outlined by the Westminster Assembly of Divines in the 17th century. And you would have to agree to raise your children in a Christian way and to baptize them and, and, and to um, raise them in the knowledge of, of the faith. And you would have to agree to um, submit yourself to church discipline to ensure that if you had conflicts with other church members, you wouldn't sue them, but you would take your conflict for mediation by uh, the church itself. And if you were to violate um, laws of morality, if you had sex out of wedlock, had an illegitimate child, you would have to go and confess your sins before the church and seek amends. That's a pretty strenuous set of requirements to join the churches. And as a result, 
a great many people never joined the church and only attended public worship. This was particularly the case for men who um, were unlikely to become full members. By contrast, something like 70 to 75% of the members of the Concord First Parish Church were female, most of them um, merely uh, women uh, who were raising children and wanted to do that within the church. Um, and so the women, in effect, could exercise power within the church in a society that kept them subordinate in so many ways, subordinate to their husbands, as, who as patriarchs could control their economic lives and, and much else. Um, Ripley was one of the liberal congregational ministers who disliked the separation between the church and the larger society or parish, as we would call it. And his aim persistently as minister was to draw as many people as possible into the church, into the general worship. Um, in effect, his model was to be um, something of an English country vicar who would gather everyone together every Sabbath to thank the Lord for his blessings. And without going into the details, Ripley pressed persistently for changes in the congregation that would get as many people as possible um, to apply for membership. His, his, in the end, what mattered to him were just a few things, not Calvinist doctrine, not dogma, simply the notion that you believed in God and in Christ, and you believed that the essence of religion was do good to your neighbor. That's what he wanted to preach. And as he preached it, he was really every Sabbath um, giving lessons in the virtues of community on the necessities of interdependence. He believed in what I call in the book an ethic of interdependence, um, an ethic that stressed that people were bound up with one another. He once said, who could live alone and independent? Who but some disgusted hermit or half crazy enthusiast would say to society, I have no need of thee. For Ripley, our highest goal in life, our highest role was in fact to be involved with our neighbors and to be, meet one another's needs. I should stress here, though, that his vision of society was also hierarchical. So we were bound together with one another in part because God, as John Winthrop had said, had made some rich and eminent and high and mighty and others um, without much at all and in need of support. Um, our very differences and inequalities were the um, ligaments that bound us together. Okay. Ripley's preaching of the virtues of community and an orderly life meant that he really stressed a commonplace morality of how we should get along with each other. And he played down any relationship to the divine, what we might want to call spirituality, um, not much in the way of an intense religious experience. And as a result, there were always members of the congregation who thought, is religion just going to hear something like a higher school master uh, every Sunday give us the lessons and how we should behave toward one another? Do we never get any sense of there being something larger? When we go out and walk in nature, if we feel that there's something there, should we not connect with that? 
Should we not listen to the warnings that we have to be born again in Christ? Ripley's preaching tried to sidestep these questions, in part because he had inherited the fears of many liberal preachers going back to the Great Awakening of religion, that to open up religion to emotions, um, to the tides of spiritual passions, could um, unsettle the churches, could lead ordinary people to think that they were as wise and, and knowledgeable about divine spirit as any learned minister. And they might challenge um, the roles of authority figures like Ripley himself. As a result, by the mid-1820s, a good number of people were finally sick and tired of Ripley's rationalist preaching, um, including, to some degree, his own stepdaughter, Mary Moody Emerson, the uh, aunt of Ralph Waldo Emerson, who um, was impatient with Ripley's endless um, preaching of the virtues of order, orderly life and his ignoring the need for spiritual intensity. And as a result, she called him Dr. Reason. And the people who wanted something more than Dr. Reason in the mid-1820s finally withdrew. And they withdrew at a time when Orthodox Congregationalists, as they were known, began to compete strenuously with liberal Protestants who would take on the name Unitarians for control of the Congregationalist establishment. In that conflict, Thoreau's aunts took the side of the Trinitarians, the evangelical Protestants, against Ezra Ripley. And Thoreau's mother first thought she was going to go over to the dissenting church and then changed her mind when she couldn't go along with his covenant and went back to Ezra Ripley's. Around the dinner table, around in the boarding house kept by the Thoreaus, discussions of faith, of community, of being true to conscience, but also being loyal to family. All those discussions must have been incredibly intense. And Henry David Thoreau clearly understood from his own family's experience that religion was something that you would have to decide for yourself. Thank you. So let's move to uh, Lemuel Shattuck. Um, as well as education in Concord for the young Thoreau and others. How and why did Lemuel Shaddock's 1830 initial report, um, Baconian Knowledge is Power Regulations, and Atlantic Ideas on Expansive Education contribute um, to these ideas that you spoke of on so-called interdependence, but also self, quote, self-reliance in Concord uh, grammar education? And then um, if you can, how did this grammar uh, experience uh, compare and contrast with Thoreau's subsequent tenure at the uh, stratified Concord Academy? Okay, well, maybe we can gather up all these questions together to say that what we're really talking about here is the subject of school reform in Concord and Massachusetts in the period of the 1820s and 1830s. Uh, often school reform is associated with the appointment of Horace Mann to be secretary of the new Massachusetts Board of Education in 1837. But there was a long foreground to Mann's appointment. And the foreground happens in places like Concord uh, in the mid-1820s, around 1825-26. Um, 
Before that period of time, many country towns in Massachusetts were utterly content to run rural district schools using their money to pay for uh, a winter school and a summer school. Maybe they would run those schools for 10, 12 uh, weeks each, uh, all and giving children time to be at home and contribute to the uh, farm economy. Um, in addition, besides having district schools in, in each of the neighborhoods, uh, Massachusetts towns were also under state requirements to maintain grammar schools, which in the colonial period had performed the role of training some young men for college admission where they might, uh, it was expected in the 17th and 18th century, go on to Harvard and train to be ministers. So, in effect, the school system established in the colonial period of tax-supported town schools was integrated into the maintenance of the standing order of religion through the education of young men for the ministry. But in the wake of the revolution, a lot of towns were uninterested in spending the money, uh, tax money clung to by ordinary um, citizens. And they were uninterested in spending the money to maintain grammar schools so that a tiny few could go on to Harvard. Uh, and as a result, Massachusetts in the mid 1820s passed a law exempting most of those towns from having to maintain um, a grammar school, except for the more populous seaport towns. Uh, Concord also maintained uh, its grammar school. The result of that law exempting towns from maintaining grammar schools was an incredible reaction uh, against what was seen by many to be the abandonment of a real commitment to schooling. And in the mid 1820s, a new move begins to strengthen the role of towns and, and to create school boards to push more systematic education. This happens in Concord um, in part through the initiative of a man named Lemuel Shattuck, who would go on to uh, larger fame um, as a historian of Concord and then in Boston as a state legislature and uh, a reformer uh, who helps push public health laws through the state of Massachusetts. Shattuck grew up in New Hampshire um, in a, on a, a hard scrabble farm. And um, he was always eager for an education. His older brother, Daniel, had been intended by his farmer father for um, advanced education and gone to an academy. Um, but father fell ill and Daniel didn't go to college. Daniel instead moved to Concord, where between in the first couple of decades of the 19th century, he opened a store on the town common and became one of the richest men, if not the richest man in the town. Lemuel, by contrast, gets off the farm by teaching school. And he moves um, after, he doesn't have all that much education himself, but he's incredibly intense about it. And wherever he can pick up learning, he does it. He ends up teaching school in Troy, New York. And in Troy, New York, he learns about a new method of schooling 
uh, called the monitorial system associated with a reformer named Joseph Lancaster. This was a system for mass education. What you have to realize is that in the ordinary country school in a Massachusetts town, schoolmaster would have 50, 60 or uh, children, at least on the books, uh, but on some days sitting in the schoolhouse. Um, and each child would have his school or her, his or her school books, girls who attended a number of months a year, and would have to recite in front of the instructor. And each child would do so. And when you weren't called on to recite, you were supposed to sit there studying your book and your lessons. This, as you might imagine, was incredibly tedious for lots of the children sitting there waiting their turn to recite. It was also difficult to keep uh, discipline among the children. The system that Shattuck discovered, the monitorial system, tried something entirely different. And that was to group the children by their levels of ability and have them teach one another under the supervision of a bright child in the group right above them. And each, uh, so the children might be in groups of uh, 10 each, so say five groups, and they would compete to see who could advance to the next level and who could advance to the next after that. The schoolmaster's job would be to associate, to organize the whole process as if he was a factory manager orchestrating all the groups together for a larger production. This has a couple major advantages. One, children were able to learn in advance at their own pace. In the old country school, they could learn only at uh, prescribed rates. For example, in Concord, a boy couldn't learn to um, um, make a pen uh, to sharpen his, um, to make a pen and use it in ink, um, sharpen his quill until he's 11 years old. He couldn't start arithmetic until he was 12. He couldn't do compositions until he was 14. In the monitorial schools, you could learn at your own pace and compete with others. Okay, Lemuel Shattuck becomes an expert at this. He moves back to Concord uh, and, he, uh, after, and he enters trade with his brother, thinking he's giving up schooling altogether. And instead he gets drawn into the school committee of Concord. And he ends up writing regulations for the school committee and uh, coming up with prescriptions for writing school reports, for um, monitoring each of the children with detailed registers of enrollment and attendance and progress. And a key part of his goal is to give greater emphasis, not just to teaching morality in the schools, which is what Ezra Ripley counted on. He wrote the school regulations, Ripley as minister in 1799 um, and in the early 19th century. Shattuck adds achievement, and the schools begin to give uh, prizes to the best students. They allow them to advance at their own rate. And Shattuck puts into the school regulations, which are adopted by the entire town, um, he puts into the regulations two key things. One is the motto, knowledge is power. Schooling should be for secular advancement in knowledge. 
You should get the best textbooks of the day, keep up with them, learn the latest science, learn the best history, learn the most advanced um, arithmetic. This was a system that was much more child-centered than the previous one. And second of all, besides knowledge is power, Shattuck builds into the school rules and policies a commitment to the individual student. And in that, schools are not only to inculcate order and virtue and morality, they're also to um, educate the child to the greatest usefulness to society. Shattuck is still playing on Ripley's old ideas of interdependence. He wrote things to society, but he's carving out a greater space for the individual within it. Cultivate yourself to the highest perfection of your powers, say the school regulations, and then put the individual perfection to the benefit of the community and society as a whole. That is school reform in Concord. Excellent summation. Thank you so much. Uh, so let's go into his parents. Uh, David Henry Thoreau's parents uh, largely endorsed the, the Concord Lyceum for, quote, self-improvement and the general good. Um, what early difficulties did Josiah Holbrook, Nemea Ball, and Lyceum proponents um, encounter with voluntary association and temperance? Um, in your response, if you can address Emerson's lecture debut, that would be quite helpful. Okay, so let's start with the Lyceum movement, which um, is associated with the Connecticut uh, reformer, Josiah Holbrook, who has graduated from Yale in, and set up on a family farm in Derby, Connecticut, and um, attends the lectures, um, uh, chemistry lectures of Benjamin Silliman at Yale, and gets enthused with the idea of the new sciences of the day and how they could be put to use. And in his mind, what he could create was a school whereby uh, farmers and then later working men could learn the new sciences of the day, put them to work in the shop and, in, and on the farm. And particularly if they were working men, they could collaborate with their employers. The Lyceum movement as he conceived it would be a means for working men to gain knowledge of the latest science and technology and put it to use with their employers to advance the industrial revolution. This was a scheme he had first read about it's practiced in England. And he comes up with his own version, the Lyceum. He comes up with the name Lyceum, by the way, because that was the name of the building where Benjamin Silliman gave his lectures on chemistry. And so he takes the Lyceum and Holbrook, we have to say, is a visionary and kind of a crackpot as well, because he imagines that he will create the American Lyceum on the national level, and that every one of the lyceums will have a number. So he goes to um, Millbury, Massachusetts in Worcester County and comes up with a charter for, Amer for the American Lyceum number one 
in Millbury, which has an armory with a lot of workers in a factory to produce uh, weapons. And those workers together with their wealthy employer will be Lyceum number one. His idea was that people would join the Lyceum and the members would, um, they'd maintain a library, they'd have what were known as apparatus, that is experimental equipment to, to study. If you were in, interested in botany, you could you know, press leaves and study them. You might have um, something like some kind of microscope. Uh, you might have some kind of telescope to study astronomy. Um, and you could do experiments. In addition, the members of the Lyceum would engage in kind of mutual instruction and give lectures to one another and engage in debates. Um, a crucial aspect of Holbrook's plan for the Lyceum is that he would reach young men who were typically say journeymen and, and working men in factories and he would direct their attention in their leisure hours to self-improvement from education instead of, as he feared, drinking and carousing uh, on their own and engaging in wasteful, dissipated activities. The Lyceum, as he saw it, was in effect uh, a form of temperance, a way of getting uh, young men away from excessive um, imbibing of ardent spirits and focusing them on amassing books and knowledge. So Holbrook goes on the road, uh, on the road to press this plan. And in it by he, a number of towns sign up in Worcester County. In 1829, he's made it to Concord, where he's given uh, lectures of his own on the subject of geology. And then he uses the opportunity uh, to give his lectures um, to see if he can rouse people to start a lyceum. Concord goes along. Though initially, uh, Holbrook's blueprint for a lyceum doesn't appeal to everyone, in part because he's charging the same high, to, membership will um, charge the same high dues of $2 a year, whether you live in the central village of the town or on the outskirts. And a lot of people who live on the outskirts are saying, hey, a lot of time in the year, we're not going to be able to get to these lectures. Why should we have to pay the same as people who live close by in the center of town? So there's a lot of wrangling and ultimately uh, their compromises made and people joined the Lyceum in Concord. And there was a second hesitation people had, and that is, how do we know we'll ever get enough locals to want to um, give lectures on their own? How do we know that people won't be afraid of the idea of having to speak before their neighbors? Um, this leads directly to your question of the difficulties that um, the Lyceum originally had. Um, in the first year or two, um, the Concord Lyceum would invite a number of guest speakers at the same time to give uh, talks through a season that would typically run, say, from um, late October, early November uh, into March on uh, once a week uh, in, in the evening. And um, Concord did in fact find it got people to give lectures. However, many people wondered a little bit as to how useful these lectures could be. There's a great example of a man named Nehemiah Ball, uh, a tanner 
and leather dealer who married into money and then inherited, who um, had been a, a country school teacher for a time and was known as a pompous man who rarely smiled and if he has found anything amusing at all, could come up with at best a kind of grim smirk on his face. Um, but he loved, cared about education. He loved the lecture to the Lyceum. And he was remembered by at least two people, two young people uh, who heard him for a lecture that he gave on the natural order of, of living things in which he had some kind of magic lantern by which he could project uh, images on a, on a sheet in the room. And he went through showing all the different animals, a lion would appear and he'd say, this is a ferocious animal. He would show a baboon and he'd measure the distance between the head and the tail. Um, and he would uh, affect, um, to um, show some uh, modesty by saying, I presume, I presume. Well, everybody mocked him at this. And there was a real question about why you would go to Lyceum to hear Nehemiah Ball lecture about the animal creation, when in fact, there were traveling zoos that were setting up in the center of Concord, where you could actually see the actual animals and not have to look at the magic lantern. Um, as a result, the Lyceum uh, was perhaps having a mixed benefit, yet it turned out to be amazingly successful. And week after week, year after year, people would pay uh, dues for the Concord Lyceum uh, to maintain the program. And soon enough, it turned out, um, Anybody interested could ask for a ticket and be admitted without having to pay. So the Lyceum was, became a regular institution in the town. And a crucial aspect of it is that the Lyceum sponsored talks that were meant to open up an expanding world of knowledge in the 19th century that was um, in 19th century Western world that was by leaps and bounds discovering the world, partly through imperialism and colonialism, uh, but also through new sciences. And the aim of the Lyceum lecture was to push people in the same directions as the agricultural society and as the school reformers were doing. That is to stop following in the customs of the forefathers, to stop following in blind superstition, to give up things like farming by the cycles of the moon, to learn the science of the day, to follow the best practices and to adopt them. This would be as true in philosophy and history as it was in, in law and in politics and in science. The Lyceum movement then was a force for change as were these other forces, a force that uh, attacked the old ways of doing things, attacked in important ways this, the modes of interdependence that it held the old world of the Minutemen and the Puritans before them together and press still more for the individual to act on his own. This was a male dominated view. Press for the um, individual to act on his own to bring about progress at large.
How and why did the debate over the toll-free Warren Bridge, as well as that 1829 trial of David Child, um, really facilitate the dissolution of the National Republican Party in Massachusetts and in Concord? Um, If you can also uh, go into the anti-Masonic movement, that would be uh, beneficial to our (laughs) listeners. Well, the ideology of progress I've been describing, break with the past, adopt the latest science of the day, innovate on your own, don't be held back by older customs. That was an ideology that was expressed most forcefully by the merchants and manufacturers of Concord Village, by the aspiring um, and ambitious craftsmen, by people like John Thoreau. Um, This was an ideology that was really espoused strongly by the National Republican Party, which was essentially um, the party of John Quincy Adams when he was president, um, and then of the Whig Party um, uh, under Henry Clay and Daniel Webster. Um, It was summed up by Clay as the American system. And the American system, uh, in Clay's view, combined tariffs, Uh, to protect domestic manufacturers in in the new United States and transportation, uh, federal support for turnpikes and and, uh, highways and post roads um, and and banks and and the second bank in the United States to carefully regulate the currency in a way that would sustain growth without leading to wildcat um, lending and credit bus, um, boom and bus cycles. So the National Republican Party took shape following the collapse of the um, Jeffersonian Republican and Federalist competition that had dominated American politics and Massachusetts politics um, in the first two decades of the 19th century. Uh, You all remember that this period after the War of 1812 um, has been christened in American histories as the era of good feelings when Federalists and Republicans laid down their arms and agreed to all join together in one common party. That didn't come very easily to Concord. As late as 1824, uh, when uh, a Federalist candidate for governor uh, reawakened all the old resentments of the previous generation, uh, Concord voters turned out and voted strongly Republican. A key thing to remember about Concord is that it has um, a mythical image as a town that was Federalist and then Whig. In fact, Concord was always a deeply conflicted and divided town during the period of Jefferson, Jeffersonian Federalist rivalry, Concord seesawed back and forth. Uh, Likewise, in the period of Whig, Jacksonian Democratic rivalry, Concord seesawed back and forth, but more often than not, was a Democratic and Jacksonian town, not a Whig town. Um, As a result, when Concord finally gave up the partisan fighting uh, and came together Uh, under the National Republican Party, it really had two factions within it. The old Republicans, many of whom were still suspicious of the old Federalists. Um, The conflicts came out over the very program for transportation that um, people like Henry Clay 
strongly supported. And that is in Massachusetts, uh, in 1785, a Charles River Bridge was chartered by the state of Massachusetts with, to cross from Charlestown uh, over to Boston. And the company that was uh, incorporated by the legislature was given a 40-year monopoly. This was the first bridge that could take you over the Charles River straight into Boston. It proved to be an immediate and an immense success, so much so that people began uh, to resent the fact that the company was earning back the money it invested in building the bridge and now just earning good profits for the investors. And uh, even at the same time, the 40-year monopoly uh, granted uh, to the Charles River Bridge Corporation um, was actually extended to some 70 years. And as a result, it wouldn't be till 1845 that the bridge could finally be free. A lot of people resented that, especially people who lived in Charlestown and nearby who might have to go into Boston frequently or were endlessly paying tolls. As a result, opponents of the Charles Bridge Corporation's monopoly came up with a plan not to take away the old charter, simply to build another bridge over the river um, and um, stop charging tolls as soon as the investors recovered their money and everybody would simply go to the free bridge. That proposal rocked Massachusetts politics in the mid to late 1820s. And what's particularly interesting about this is that two conquered politicians, John Kyes and Samuel Hoare, played key roles in the fight. Samuel Hoare was a state senator in 1825 and chairman of the Committee of Bridges. Uh, he was an old Federalist and a strong supporter for the old order. He supported the religious establishment and its privileges. He strongly supported enforcement of the laws against uh, unnecessary travel on the Sabbath. And he was deeply opposed to any change in the charter of the uh, Charles River Bridge Company. He believed in old establishments and he rejected the idea that you could essentially expropriate the property of the Charles River Bridge Company by chartering another company that would simply offer free passage over the river. Um, he also, I should add, opposed the expansion of the suffrage to incorporate all tax-paying residents, uh, male residents, 21 years and older. He wanted to hold to the older property requirements for the suffrage, a position he maintained at the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention of 1820-21. Um, so as chairman of the Committee on Bridges, Hoare writes a report rejecting the uh, chartering of the Warren Bridge to compete with the Charles River Bridge. And he does something really remarkable. He makes a case against economic development and for preservation. And what he says is something rare in the annals of American politics. And that is, we already chartered the Charles River Bridge and people invested in it. And when the bridge was constructed, businesses established themselves near the terminus of the bridge and then people moved there and they, they 
built their houses, and a lot of investment took shape around the existing infrastructure. How dare we now, in effect, take money away from people who trusted in the faith of the state by chartering another bridge and undermining the existing commitment? If you step back from that for a moment, imagine if the building of the interstate highway system in the 1950s under Eisenhower had been opposed by um, congressmen who said, we can't do that. We have old post roads in which people are already invested. We're not going to um, expropriate their wealth by setting up new competition. Of course, that's exactly what we did do in the 1950s. Samuel Hoare said no. But John Kyes, his opponent in Concord politics, a longtime member of the Jeffersonian Republicans and now a member of the um, National Republican Party, he strongly supported the Warren Bridge. And he supported the idea of active, expansive development, not held back by old commitments. So within Concord then, you had supporters of the Charles River Bridge, charter and supporters of the new Warren Bridge. You asked me to talk about the further conflicts in this. Turns out that Senator John Kyes, one of the most powerful men in Massachusetts government, who rose to be um, president pro tem of the Massachusetts Senate and at other times um, later in the Massachusetts House, acting speaker of the House. Um, John Kyes, um, was possibly inclined toward Andrew Jackson before Jackson's first election. And he was also an imperious figure who amassed offices one after another. You know, we think of American government as in the, in the early Republic as being so different from European monarchies in that the federal constitution bars anyone from holding more than one office at a time in the new national government. But John Kyes knew how to parlay the system. He could be moderator of town meeting, treasurer, elected treasurer of Middlesex County, state senator for Middlesex County. He could be an adjutant in the state militia. He would be simultaneously a master of the local Masonic Lodge. That is, and he was federal postmaster. The man held office in one area of government after another, and he incurred a lot of resentment. David Lee Child, strong supporter of John Quincy Adams, suspected that Kyes was a closet Jacksonian. And uh, when Kyes ran for, for re-election as senator in 1827, Child attacks him at the last minute as a guy who can't be trusted, who's no real friend to John Quincy Adams, who is, um, a proponent of the Warren Bridge, he ought to be chucked out of office. Kais is furious. He has only a week to respond. He is reelected, but by his weakest margin ever. And he is so angry at David Lee Child for attacking him in the press that he gets Child indicted for criminal libel. And the trial of Child for criminal libel becomes a political spectacle in Massachusetts. Child, the husband of the future uh, of the writer and reformer Lee Mariah Child, is convicted and sentenced to six months in state prison. 
he appeals, but he does his time. And uh, on his case, his conviction is later overthrown by the Massachusetts Supreme Court, but he's already served his time. In any case, Kai's has played his hand heavily. And he's a Mason. He's been a, he's now on the uh, a national, uh, on the state level um, officers and board of Masonry in Massachusetts. And Ezra Ripley, the minister of Concord, still supported by town taxes, is also a leading Mason. As a result of their exercises of power, a good many people begin to think, who are these people secretly running things in their own interests? And as a result, when anti-Masonry takes hold across the country, it will eventually erupt in Concord around 1833 in what becomes a huge rebellion, a populist rebellion against the ruling class of the town. A rebellion that in many ways uh, is misdirected since it is a grand overstatement to suggest that Masons were dominating government in Massachusetts. However, Masons in Concord did have a prominence that attracted a lot of hostile um, attention. Thank you. So if possible, please situate Emerson's family and his peripatetic pastorate background within uh, the transmission of German romantic ideas into Concord and the awakening of Unitarian transcendentalism, as well as anti-Catholicism. Hmm. Emerson became famous in the 19th century as the Concord sage. But Emerson didn't move to Concord until the fall of 1834, when he um, arrived at the old manse, the home of Reverend Dr. Ezra Ripley, and where his mother was keeping house. He comes there, and it's only in the spring of 1835 that Emerson makes the decision, I'm going to live in Concord, and I'm going to return to the fields of my fathers. Emerson's a Bostonian. He's a Boston boy who um, grows up the son of a minister, his father, Reverend William Emerson, and grandson of a minister, his grandfather, Reverend William Emerson of Concord, and a descendant straight from Peter Buckley, the founding minister of Concord, of one parson after another. So Emerson's not only a scion of the clergy of Massachusetts and a Boston boy, he's also with his brothers and orphaned when his father dies um, young. And the widow raises her children partly with aid from the former um, church where her late husband had been minister but also from the, her earnings, keeping a boarding house in Boston. And she rents the houses where she takes in boarders and moves from one place to another to another. Emerson shifts along with her and his brothers. And then he goes to Harvard. So he's living in dorm rooms. He moves from one place to another. He graduates from Harvard. He teaches school for a while in Brookline and Newton. And then he gets his ministerial training. 
becomes minister of the Second Church in Boston, marries a young heiress named Ellen Tucker, who will shortly die within a couple of years of the marriage. Um, he's chosen as minister of the Second Church of Boston, but following Ellen's death, he resigns from the ministry, um, goes to Europe, comes back. Uh, he learns about the Lyceum movement, thinks maybe he could become a lecturer. Okay, what I've just described is a peripatetic existence. A young man who has grown up in a city, but without any settled place, without a homestead, without a family uh, property, just an inheritance, if you will, of a clerical family line in the metaphoric fields of my father's. In that setting, Emerson has also been absorbing ideas about religion, about piety from his aunt, Mary Moody Emerson. He's well aware of his step-grandfather, Reverend Ripley. He's also taken a negative view of Reverend Ripley, which he's gotten from Mary Moody Emerson, who, as I mentioned earlier, scorns the old parson as Dr. Reason, resents somewhat his appropriating the Emerson uh, line in, and legacy to himself. And Mary Moody Emerson has always been, has been reading um, you know, uh, theology. She's well aware of uh, some of the early romantics. And she urges Waldo to live up to the legacy of his clerical forebears, who in her mind were men who spoke in commanding voices, who denounced sinners rather than deferred to wealthy uh, parishioners, who spoke of the need for an intense relation to God. At the same time, as she herself wrestled with Calvinist um, theology and dogma, she had an open mind and read widely and expected her nephews to do the same and to maintain the family legacy in um, uh, their own uh, practice as clergy. So Emerson, partly fostered by his aunt, partly by his uh, coming of age in, uh, in the mid-1820s, at the same time as other liberal Protestant ministers who've attended Harvard Divinity School, and comes to discover in Coleridge and Carlyle and then in Kant and the German Romantics, a new way of thinking about faith. Um, he's picked up on this and, and, um, and ideas is of the Reverend William Ellery Channing as well, which emphasize the ways in which human beings have within them um, faculties, um, spiritual, religious sentiments that can give them direct access to a higher um, uh, possibility. Channing believes that we all have within us a kind of likeness to God, which we can cultivate in the course of our lives. But Unitarians broadly believe that on the one hand, we could see and come to observe and, and worship the handiwork of God by studying nature and by studying ourselves, by cultivating our higher faculties. Yet at the same time, Unitarians generally clung to the New Testament 
in the Old Testament and the authority of revelation. That even though you could understand God and divinity and moral law just through living and observing nature and its handiwork, still you need the supplementary revelation from the New Testament. Emerson and his liberal colleagues who will become transcendentalists embrace a broader idea. And their broader idea comes to be that, uh, as Emerson announced it, that there's a doctrine he calls the doctrine of the soul. That each of us is part uh, and parcel of the divine soul that runs through all of nature. How do we know this? We know this because we have been endowed by a creator with a very capacity to experience a spiritual connection to something higher. Um, you couldn't possibly know a divine spirit. You couldn't experience it in nature unless the capacity to do so was part of your nature given to you by divinity. In this perspective, Emerson is then urging people in his sermons when he's still a freelance minister and before he's embraced the most radical implications of, of his beliefs, he's urging people to look to nature, to see in its beauty, in its aesthetics, um, the, the very grandeur of existence. And this will lead Emerson to argue in his early lectures before the Lyceum, and then in his little book, Nature in 1836, that nature and creation have various uses for people. Some are economic or material. We make scientific discoveries. We find new technologies. Those are the uses of nature that the Lyceum movement has in mind. Those are the uses of nature that a man like um, Nehemiah Ball will have in mind when he's outlining the creation. But when Emerson gives his lectures, he says, no, but nature has still higher uses. Nature was made not to use, but to behold, to see its aesthetic beauty, to admire its grandeur. And Emerson draws as an implication that we can pursue the material benefits of nature through science and technology too much, so much that our greed and, and aspirations for consumer satisfactions or even desire for technological power they will um, blind us to the higher possibilities of the spirit that are there in nature. Emerson also comes to preach the doctrine of one soul as a doctrine that is one of equality. That if we have within us the capacity to appreciate the divine, then each of us is equal in human possibility. And he lays out these views in a series of lectures in Boston between 1837 and 1841, in which he's really first speaking about religion and then about all politics and society. And a key thing I want to stress here is that transcendentalism comes to be uh, a controversial but well-known way of viewing the world in the mid-1830s, at the very moment when the religious establishment is being um, abolished in Massachusetts Bay, and where the state's voters will pass a constitutional amendment uh, making religion 
a voluntary affair with no required tax contributions to keeping up the meeting house or to paying a minister. In 1833 to 1835, it's clear that disestablishment is coming and transcendentalism begins to appeal to liberal Unitarian ministers because it provides a way to compete with, con with Orthodox Congregationalists, with Baptists, with Methodists, with Universalists, with others. Why? Emerson is preaching in his doctrine of one soul that religion is not a building. You can worship God on a hilltop or in a cathedral. Religion is not a system of government. You can have the elaborate hierarchy of the papacy and the Catholic Church. You can have monthly meetings of, of the Society of Friends, the Quakers, or you can have independent congregations like in Massachusetts. Religion isn't just a system of dogma. Look at how many differences there are among the various Christian denominations. Should you baptize by immersion or just sprinkle a little water? That's not religion. Uh, Emerson says religion is a sentiment of a larger spirit. And that means that only you as an individual can know it, can experience it, can feel it. The notion of religion as a spiritual sentiment means that religion rests ultimately on the experience of the individual, not on revelation, not on the New Testament, but on the interior experience of every single person. In this perspective, Emerson then has done something profoundly radical as do other transcendentalists, and that, and though not all. And Emerson is in effect saying, we don't need the New Testament to tell us that there's a higher power. We don't need the Old Testament. In fact, all we need is a feeling. And yet, from the perspective of the Unitarian critics, as well as Congregationalists and others, to say that religion is only a feeling is to say that you're back in the Great Awakening when anyone, no matter how learned or unlearned, could stand up and say, I know God better than the minister who's in the pulpit. That way led chaos to many. To Emerson, it led to a greater harmony as each of us could be raised to discover our infinite perfectibility within. Emerson came to believe that we all share not so much a common humanity as a common divinity. And it was his self-chosen task as a lecturer to urge everyone to realize an interior divinity for themselves and to perfect their natures. Thank you so much. So in the context of Concord's bicentennial conflict um, of narratives with Lexington, as well as Ripley's uh, monument proposal and all those historical societies, how did uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's 1835, that three-act oratory on, on, on his narrative, Concord Pass, um, can you explore that a bit? Um, as well, its relation, as well as the culmination of it, which uh, for Emerson was sort of a transcendentalist deliberative democracy. Okay, so remember, Concord decided the opening battle of the Revolutionary War, the confrontation between Redcoats and Minutemen at the Old North Bridge on April 19, 1775. What Emerson will call in the Concord Hymn of 1837, the shot heard 
heard around the world. Concord was immensely proud of its role at the start of the revolution. Um, Lexington, through which British regulars passed and massacred the um, people, the malicious standing on the town common. Lexington in 1775 agreed to uh, accept that um, its men had fired no shots at all and were shot down by um, savage British soldiers. Concord at the time said, here's where we um, fired the first uh, fired shots after being fired upon. But by 1825, Lexington was no longer um, content to be the place of a massacre rather than a battle. And, and it resented Concord taking the credit as the first site of forcible resistance to British aggression. What that meant is that when Concord got around to celebrating April 19th as a regular holiday, speaker after speaker came to the town and said, here we are, the first site of the opening battle of the American Revolution, in effect, the birthplace of American independence. In 1825, Concord had made this claim and at the 50th anniversary of the battle, and people in Lexington reacted angrily. Ezra Ripley then gathered up testimonies from people who were longtime survivors from April 19, 1775, and wrote his own history of the fight at Concord, uh, published those testimonies, and he stood for the local consensus. Concord was the place where it all happened. 1835, Concord was about to celebrate his bicentennial as a town. And the idea was to plan a grand celebration. And the local leaders thought, let's invite Daniel Webster to speak. Uh, he was too busy. Let's invite Edward Everett to speak. He was too busy. Finally, the committee to choose a speaker running out of options said, why don't we ask this guy, Ralph Waldo Emerson, to speak? So he accepts the invitation. He spends his summer working away, reading in uh, the archives, looking at the town meeting records, basically doing what I've done. And I feel like, you know, Emerson is probably, you know, when I look at the town books and manuscripts, they were in Emerson's hands, they were in Ezra Ripley's hands before mine ever got to them. Uh, in any case, Emerson is called on to give the speech and he faces a fundamental question. On the one hand, as he's in Adopting the view of being a public lecturer and speaker, he holds out for himself the credo, he will never say anything just for the moment to satisfy an audience, but rather that he will speak the truths that he's contemplated for a long time. Well, that's pretty hard to live up to when you've accepted the invitation to speak on a ceremonial occasion to the moment being recognized. So Emerson puts together a talk, which he's got to do a couple of things. He's got to be true to his own vision. And part of his vision, which he will express in 1836 in his little book, Nature, is that to his dismay, we build the sepulchers of the fathers. Our lives are buried under the dead bones of the past. We have to free ourselves to speak to the truths as we know them and experience in our lives, in our generation. 
If you're mulling over that credo, that declaration of independence from the past, how do you put together a memorial speech for a ceremony in 1835, whose central goal is to remember the past? And how do you give this lecture, this address? What do you do when you come to April 1975? Are you going to acknowledge Lexington or are you going to hold to the local truths of Concord? So these are the challenges Emerson has before him. He reads over all the town records and he borrows from Lemuel Shattuck. Remember Lemuel Shattuck, the school reformer? Shattuck has just written, finished his history of Concord. It hasn't yet been published. And he borrows the manuscript. So he draws upon Shattuck's research as well. And Emerson now has to, he's going to tell his story. What is he going to say? As he looks at the history of Concord, he doesn't talk about the transit of institutions from England, from the old world to the new. He doesn't talk about customs and values and ideas being uh, passed on um, from Anglo-Saxon or Germanic forests to the American frontier. Instead, he comes up with a different idea. His idea is that the first settlers of Concord, which was the first inland settlement in the interior of, of by the English in North America, above tidewater, beyond the scent and smell of the sea. And you see the first settlers going back into the woods, into the forest, and creating a society, he says, in effect, here they went back to a state of nature. Here nature dictated to them the imperatives of what they would have to do to create a society, in effect, create a society anew. Emerson is in effect inventing the Turner thesis of American history in which civilization goes back to the frontier, to the woods, and has to reinvent itself in democracy and equality and liberty where everyone would have to do his part, her part, where everyone would um, have to join in cooperation to rebuild and form society. In such a world, Emerson says, we see nature at work. Just as Emerson would say, in, in nature, we see God at work. Um, nature and spirit go together in the making of civilization anew. This is a transcendentalist vision. And Emerson, in endorsing it, says two other things. The key to the New England way is town meeting government. In the town meeting, he says, every voice was heard, every person, uh, however generous or miserly, however unwilling to pay taxes, or however generous to the common good, um, every voice was heard, that of bigotry as well as enlightenment. In this perspective, Emerson says, we have free speech, free voices, every individual expressing his conscience to participate in local self-government. This was pretty much a myth. Uh, 18th century town meeting governments did not so much prize the lone voice of dissent, but put the premium on unanimity, on consensus, on everyone coming together. One of the ways in which town meetings operated was they rarely counted the votes. 
and the town clerk usually pointedly noted, the town unanimously decided. So Emerson is really upholding the lone voice of dissent, not so much because it was an 18th century heritage, but because he saw the individual threatened in mid 19th century America by mass political parties, by the rise of mass industrial society, of big cities, of large scale benevolent societies running petition campaigns and raising money to distribute Bibles or send missionaries all over the country or across some unchristian parts of the world. And Emerson's perspective, the individual was threatened uh, and the one soul that could be expressed by the individual could be suppressed. Um, he then projects back into the past a valuation on the individual that grows out of his own time, but in his own time is threatened. So the Emerson, as the voice of transcendentalist individualism, imputes to the past a heritage that he's actually inventing for the 19th century and beyond. So what about um, Emerson's monument dedication hymn, or, as well as that entrepreneurial lecture circuit between 1836 and 1841? If you can discuss that um, and uh, his, how did he reconcile his assessment of the Panic of 1837 and partisanship with um, his conquered social circle membership, his praise for prudent businessmen, et cetera. Well, let's start with the Concord Hymn. Concord Hymn was written for the dedication of the monument to the battle, April 19, 1775, on the shore of the Concord River, overlooking the bridge where the fight had been held. Except there wasn't any bridge there. In the 1790s, Ezra Ripley and a group of uh, townspeople had masterminded and pushed through the taking down of the bridge where the battle had occurred and relocating it um, in a um, different part of town across the river, which would enable people who lived in the northeast part of Concord to come to Sabbath worship more readily. So there was no bridge there. It hadn't been a bridge since the mid 1790s. And um, that had cut off the battlefield from uh, tourists. Um, Concord had sought to build a monument to the battle um, from the 1790s on in, in a kind of occasional way and didn't finally come to an agreement to construct the monument until 1825, when the Bunker Hill Monument Association came up with an idea for a huge monument at Bunker Hill in Charlestown, and a much smaller monument, but of a similar design in Concord. Seemed like a good idea, especially since Charlestown and the Bunker Hill Monument Association would provide financial aid to Concord. Problem was, people in Concord disagreed bitterly over where to put the monument. Eventually, it was agreed that the monument would be put in the center of town, but which would serve the interest of storekeepers, of hotel keepers, of tavern keepers, um, of, and, and others 
who would all do business from the various tourists and others who came to the center to see the monument. And there was a logic for it. British troops had occupied the center of town, had um, gone into neighboring homes um, in an attempt to seize weapons from, from people hiding them, had burned the Liberty Pole and, and a number of weapons in the town center. Um, so center of town could make a, a claim. On April 19th, uh, 1825, a cornerstone was laid for the monument. And unfortunately, nobody hurried to build a, a, a obelisk on top of that cornerstone. And in short time, uh, the people who dissented from the monument in center town, who believed it should really be in the battlefield where the first shots were fired, they put up a mock monument of barrels and boards on top of the cornerstone. The satire so annoyed the proponents of the village site that they set on fire the mock monument, forgetting that tar was in the barrels and the resulting fire uh, wrecked the cornerstone. Ezra Ripley saw this with great dismay. And he pushed for a long time to get a monument erected on land that adjoined the old man's. Some of that land had been public highway, which Ripley appropriated into his own estate when the bridge was relocated and nobody had to take the highway anymore across the river. So jump ahead. Concord finally agrees in 1835 to build a monument by the North Bridge when Ripley makes a proposal He'll donate the land for the monument if the town builds it with by a deadline. Everybody finally agrees they'll do that. And yet, even after building the monument, they're fighting, the members of the committee are fighting over what the inscription should say. And one member after another is offering different lines for the inscription. And this is like trying to write a poem by committee. In any case. They fight so long that when it's time to dedicate the monument, they've missed April 19th, 1837. And they have to use the next nearest occasion, which is July 4th. So on Independence Day, the dedication ceremony is held. And Ripley is proud to preside. A choir comes out. And the choir includes Henry David Thoreau on the verge of his graduation from Harvard College. And they're gonna sing a hymn, the Concord Hymn, composed for the occasion by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson is not even there. He's already had an appointment to go someplace else. But the lines he's composed have a larger import than the lines that we most remember today. The most famous lines are by the rude bridge that arched the flood, um, their flags to April breeze unfurled. Here once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard around the world. That's Concord's consensus. We were the place of a world changing event, the shot heard around the world. And we're dedicating this monument on July 4th. In effect, linking the town's history forever to American independence we were its birthplace.
But Emerson actually goes on in the poem to offer a larger view. Central theme of the poem is really how do you commemorate an event? How will it be remembered in years past? Because eventually, he says, the bridge will be taken down. The waters will wash away what's been here. And finally, the men will go, like all men, forgotten in time by anyone. What remains, he says, is nature, of which we're all a part. And so what begins is a poem that looks to be patriotic bombast about the great event that the soldiers did here becomes something more philosophical, something that realizes it were all part of nature, which is both timeless and forever young. And that we will then take from this moment, not conflict, not disagreement, but a sense of being part of a larger whole that will continue on long after us. Thanks. So how and why did Emerson's nature, as well as uh, his 1837 walks to Walden with, uh, with uh, uh, Thoreau, actually, um, initially impact David Henry Thoreau, um, especially in the context of Thoreau's adoration of the so-called savage, as well as his belief in uh, possession of material goods for, quote, moral and intellectual growth? Well, it's not with Henry David Thoreau, who goes off to college a faithful son of his family, still a Whig, still a moralist, still probably hoping to become a lawyer or maybe a minister, but um, the son of the entrepreneurial family. Also, so proud a conquered patriot, so uh, ready to boast of his native town, that he was constantly being ribbed by his Harvard classmates for his conquered self-conceit. Um, and so he's fairly conventional in his first years in college. There's a huge student uprising during his years as a student. He, avoid, he doesn't, takes no part in it. In fact, he's, he is never actually fined or disciplined for disobeying and any of the college rules. So here is the um, famous um, prophet of civil disobedience who goes to jail to protest the Mexican war. Um, this is a boy who doesn't violate any of the college rules. But then he takes a term off in his junior year to teach and earn a little extra money. And we should add here, he goes to Harvard in part as a scholarship student. And when he gets one of his um, sources of financial aid um, consists of the rents from uh, some properties in Chelsea, Massachusetts that have been given to Harvard for purpose of scholarship. And he actually has to go collect the rent himself. So, you know, talk about a work-study job. You got to collect the rents on people um, in order to pay his own expenses at college. Maybe Thoreau has a sense as a scholarship boy 
of the sharpening class system at Harvard College itself. But he takes time off to be a teacher and to earn extra money to, for his expenses. And he actually ends up living in Canton, Massachusetts, staying in the home of the radical minister and transcendentalist, Orestes Brownson. And while he's there for the six weeks or so, Brownson really opens him up to romantic thought and to democratic egalitarian thought. Brownson will soon become a major figure in the Massachusetts Democratic Party, writing its platform and, and in giving it transcendentalist ideas of equality and democracy as, as part of the party program. Thoreau listens to Brownson. He later writes him and he says, that time I spent with you was an era in my existence. It transformed my life. He goes back to Harvard and he's now no longer such a good, good boy and obedient student. Um, not that he disobeys rules, but his attitude seems different. And when Emerson publishes Nature in 1836, Thoreau gets it out from the library. He reads it. He's so devoted to it that he actually uh, ends up buying another copy and giving it as a gift to a fellow student. He has not yet met Emerson. He won't meet Emerson at his graduation in 1837, where Thoreau um, has a speaking part in the commencement ceremony. And Emerson gives the American Scholar Address the next day. After his graduation ceremony, Thoreau goes back home to Concord, never hears Emerson. But Thoreau is developing ideas about the spiritual, about the religious sentiment that are in his own speech at commencement that clearly show the influence of his reading of Emerson's nature. Emerson says in nature, we have higher uses than mere material um, gain, a mere consumer goods. We can experience nature as, as aesthetic creation. It can be a bomb to our spirit. So Thoreau says something like this. In his heart, comments and commencement, Thoreau emphasizes that man is freer than ever before in our time. His mind works faster, it races forward, it makes all kinds of discoveries and progress. The problem is, says Thoreau, we remain on too low a level. And we should recognize that nature is made for beauty, to behold, not just to use. And in effect, he's faithful to Emerson's idea of levels by which we use nature in those comments. But over the succeeding years, what will happen is Emerson and especially Thoreau will become deeply critical of all the ways in which the material uses of nature get in the way and obstruct and violate and contradict and blockade the spiritual uses of nature. And so the critique of trade, the curse of trade in Thoreau, the critique of um, conformity, the critique of going along with your neighbor, the critique of um, not reading, of, of looking only at popular culture, all those notions of massive men lead lives of quiet desperation are notions that Thoreau has picked up 
as part of his desire to enable himself and others to realize the true divine spirit within that corresponds to the spirit within all of nature. Thoreau is then faithful to Emerson in his notion of the highest uses of nature, but he'll come to dissent from Emerson. And then Emerson can, can uh, give a lecture like the Young American, in which he praises the spread of farming across the continent. Thoreau would look at the same thing and worry about the loss of wildness, the subjection of everything to the plow. So Thoreau ends up with a more radical sense of the nature that corresponds to man than Emerson ever has. Okay. So why did Emerson's 1838 address to the Harvard School of Divinity graduates incite a backlash? And what did he mean by the, quote, famine of our churches? And how did such a sentiment generate divisions in Unitarianism? So, Ryan, how would you like it if at your graduation ceremony from college, <laughs> the speaker looked out over the audience, saw your parents there, and said, you know, hate to tell you, but you wasted your money. <laughs> um, how would you like it if the speaker at your divinity school graduation took up the theme of what Emerson said in the American Scholar Address at the Harvard commencement of 1837 and said to the divinity school, you not just wasted your money. If you came to this divinity school with the aim of serving your fellow beings by opening up to them the real sense of piety and religion, if you take seriously what they taught you here at Harvard Divinity School, you're farther from that goal than ever. You've wasted your time and your money. Emerson doesn't say that explicitly, but in the American Scholar Address and then in the Divinity School Address, he basically is suggesting that Harvard College has failed in its goal. It's, it has not fostered the development of man thinking. It's turned out parrots of other men's thinking. It hasn't fostered the development of ministers who would be true men who could speak from their own experience, from their own souls, from their own felt sense of, of spirituality, from their knowledge of what it means to live, to farm, to raise children, to um, engage the world, um, and to know that all that's empowered by a faith in divinity. No, he says, you've learned to read books, to quote other people's books, to read sermons, to, to spend all your time, um, just bringing everybody together. He says, you know, in our time, he says, it's, it's the best that anybody can say about going to Sabbath worship is that at least it brings everybody in the community together. But that's not religion. Huh. The irony is, of course, that was exactly why Ezra Ripley prized Sunday worship. It brought everybody in the community together. And then Emerson, staring at and having heard and listened to Ezra Ripley's assistant, Barzilli Frost, and having listened to the old man Ripley as well preach, there are times in Concord Emerson listens to them and writes in his journal, huh, 
Let the grandfathers die already. They, you're preaching emptiness. It goes nowhere. And he listens to, to Frost one Sabbath and he said, and it's snowing outside. And he says, the preacher was spectral. The view of the snow outside the window was real. Um, that there's a famine in our churches. People go hoping maybe the farmer, the artisan, it's been a difficult week. It's been hard. Maybe somebody's had conflict in the family. Maybe they've had bad business deals. They need to know something can cheer them to make them feel that life is worthwhile. And what do they get? Empty words, repeating other empty words with nothing but social conformity and convention as the message. Emerson says, that's what you're learning to preach at Harvard Divinity School. Only if you go outside, discover nature, and feel that you have a soul and you can preach one soul to another in the congregation. Only that is true religion. And sadly, you didn't get it at Harvard. Nice. Uh, so um, in the context of Mary Brooks and the Concord Female Anti-Slavery Society's uh, invitation to Wendell Phillips uh, to lecture the Concord Lyceum, why did Emerson advance a rationale of discussion rather than action, at least initially, against chattel slavery? Um, and what prompted that open letter to uh, Martin Van Buren regarding the Trail of Tears? Well, I think we've got a couple of things mixed together here. So let me first say, the Lyceum movement, for all that it claimed to take in any subject in the world, farming and, and, and education, science, technology, world history, the classics, philosophy, political philosophy of republicanism. For all it said you could speak about anything, there were implicit and sometimes explicit limits. They didn't want any partisanship. You couldn't go in and make an argument for Jackson versus Clay. You're supposed to avoid political parties. You couldn't debate sectarianism. You weren't supposed to give lectures on why it's better to be a Unitarian than, a, than an Orthodox Congregationalist. And shut up about slavery. Don't say anything about abolitionism. But the Lyceum movement was contradictory. They were quite willing to host in Concord spokesmen for the American Colonization Society who argued that the only solution to slavery in, in the United States was through voluntary manumission of the enslaved and the sponsorship of their colonization or their deportation to the new settlement in Liberia in West Africa. So the Concord Lyceum hosted a man named B.B. Thatcher who was an officer of the Massachusetts Colonization Society on several occasions. And Ezra Ripley thought this colonization was the only answer we were gonna have to slavery. He opposed African slavery, but he, he thought, as did a good many New Englanders, the white racism could never be removed. And that blacks freed under a regime of white racism could never progress. So colonization was the only alternative to a racism that could never be changed. William Lloyd Garrison, working with free blacks in Philadelphia and Baltimore, New York and Boston, utterly rejected colonization. 
thought it a compromise with evil, a concession to the devil. And he argued both for immediate abolition of slaves in the South and for equal rights as citizens for Black Americans with white Americans. The Lycia movement did not host any abolitionists. And it would be not until the early 1840s that the Concord Female Anti-Slavery Society became fed up with the silence about slavery in Concord. Reasons for the silence about slavery in Concord are complicated. Part of it is that the men in the town tied either to the Jacksonian Democratic Party or to the Whigs broadly accepted that under the Constitution, it would be impossible for Congress to do anything about slavery outside of federal territory. And to do something in federal territory was itself a matter of debate between Whigs and Democrats. As a result, when the, the newly formed Middlesex Anti-Slavery Society um, came to Concord to sponsor a lecture in uh, January of 1835, the Concord Whig newspaper denounced the idea of a Scottish, of a British abolitionist um, coming to, to their town, the home of the battle of April 19, 1775, and telling them what to do. And the Concord uh, Yeoman's Gazette editorialized and said, we should not meddle with slavery where we are. We can't do anything about it. We should be silent and we should certainly not say anything that would rouse up the enslaved to rebellion. And so the men of Concord declined to do anything about slavery, even though in other towns, um, anti-slavery societies were being founded. In 1837, the famous Grimke sisters came to Concord and lectured, and they spurred a lot of discussion among the women of the town. At the same time, the men of Concord still declined to form a general anti-slavery society. We know that between about 1831, uh, 1832, and 1839, um, of, all the of all the towns in Massachusetts that established anti-slavery societies, 80% of them were general town societies with men as well as women. Only a fifth were female or juvenile society. Concord in September, in, in uh, November of 1837, starts a female anti-slavery society with some 60 or so members who include Emerson's wife, Thoreau's mother, um, uh, the uh, free black woman, uh, Susan Robbins Garrison, on an equal basis with uh, the white women. And so you then have a female society pushing active discussion of slavery, and you have a lyceum that doesn't want to say anything about it. It is through the pressure of the female anti-slavery society that the lyceum is finally led to 
issue an invitation to Wendell Phillips to give several, to give what will be the first of several lectures. And this is done with Emerson and Thoreau pushing within the ranks of the Concord Lyceum for the invitation. But the payment to Wendell Phillips to give his talk is probably made available through the funding of the Concord Female Anti-Slavery Society. And so it's on those occasions that Emerson and Thoreau play a role in bringing slavery before the town. A key reason for the pressure on the Lyceum is that the ministers in the Unitarian congregation, as well as in the Trinitarian and later Universalist um, congregation, are declining to sponsor anti-slavery activities within their own meeting houses. So if the abolitionists are gonna reach people, how are they gonna do so? The Lyceum looks to be the forum that will get the most people together within the town. So Emerson, in his own right, he's been invited to speak in New Bedford in, these, in the early 1840s, um, but he knows that New Bedford is going to segregate the Blacks in the town and make them sit in a separate section. He says, I won't speak to you if you segregate the crowd, and he turns them down. Likewise, he is pushing for, for Phillips to speak. And if you'll remember, I mentioned Samuel Hoare and John um, Kais long ago. They're still important politicians in the town, leading figures, and they oppose as strongly as they can the invitations to Phillips. Phillips has denounced the Constitution of the United States as a compact with slavery and a bargain with hell. And he's denounced by Samuel Hoare as uh, a disorganizer. Likewise, uh, John Kai says, we can't have this violation of the constitutional compact. But Phillips speaks three times in Congress. And Emerson is then led to give his own address it's commemorating the 10th anniversary of West Indian emancipation to the Middlesex County Anti-Slavery Society. And it's then finally, he identifies himself with the abolitionist cause. He's hesitated to do so before, not because he's ever been a supporter of slavery, but because the early anti-slavery movement has closely involved evangelical Protestant Orthodox Congregationalist ministers. And Emerson deeply dislikes their tone. And he's put off by the style of argument that they emphasize. He also early on doesn't like the railing against all slave owners as immoral and sinners. And he, along with his brother, Charles Chauncey Emerson, think that like William Ellery Channing, that you should be able to make an argument against slavery on principles alone without denouncing individuals for sin. He comes 
to move past that. And in his own lecture in 1844, um, when he speaks out against slavery and identifies with abolitionism, he himself evokes the pains and the cruelty and the sufferings of blacks in the Middle Passage and under slave masters. And most importantly, he identifies himself strongly with equal rights for all citizens, black as well as white. That's the crucial thing that in his 1844 speech and then subsequent speeches, he comes to embrace the egalitarian implications of his doctrine of one soul. Everyone is entitled to freedom. Everyone has a soul. Everyone has a self capable of perfection. Okay. Uh, so in the context of Irish labor migrations to Concord and the eclipse of village merchants by Boston merchants um, who are distributing Concord goods and proprietor specialty crops via the Iron Horse train, let's talk about uh, Brook Farm. How did Brook Farm and the writings of Nathaniel Hawthorne establish Concord as the pastoral seat of transcendentalists, quote, counterculture? And why did Emerson uh, decline to join the project? So we might think about Brook Farm as the original of the back to the land movement that inspired hippies and disillusioned new leftists in the 1960s. So Brook Farm, though, saw itself as an experiment they would put transcendentalist ideas of individual self and self-cultivation and self-perfection into practice, not as a retreat from the modern world, but a development of modernity on democratic and egalitarian grounds. And the big problem the founders of Brook Farm saw in society, and Emerson agreed with this, is a great separation between the head and the hands, which is to say the middle class knowledge workers of the world and the day laborers and hand workers and uh, mechanics of the world. And that one group got to cultivate the mind, but was cut off from nature and hard work. The other group never got much in the way of education and had to do hard manual labor. Couldn't we create a world where everybody could be a whole person doing manual and mental labor together? Well, this couldn't happen under the existing division of labor. It could only happen through a cooperative scheme. And that cooperative scheme would have to involve that everybody earned the same wage, that everybody contributed necessary labor for the common good, and the provision of a subsistence that came out of all that collective labor would enable each member of the community to also have the leisure to cultivate his or her mind, perform music, write, write fiction, um, engage in um, dances or holidays and festivals in neighborliness with others. So Brook Farm was a scheme that would use egalitarian techniques to foster democratic cooperation 
And that democratic cooperation would enable then individuals to enjoy the time to educate and develop themselves as fully as possible. Um, you might say it was cooperative means to individual ends. Emerson was in some ways drawn to Brook Farm because he himself had said the problem when society was an excessive division of labor. The problem was that people were cut off from their full selves by being, um, that the intellectual was not man thinking, but just a parrot of other man's thinking, that laborers um, were cut off from their uh, fullest possibilities and were um, driven into desperation, depression, and, and um, you know, just utterly worn out by having to work 10, 12 hours a day at, at a single task. So Emerson could be drawn to Brook Farm. And so George Ripley, the, one of the, the key founder of the experimental community thought, this is an Emersonian idea. Won't you join us, Walter? Well, Emerson was torn by the possibility. Ultimately, he comes up with different explanations for why he can't do it. One is he says, well, I've, it doesn't suit me. It's not really, it's not really me. Um, I'm, I'm doing my good work here in Concord. I, I can't move and pick up and go someplace else. He also uses a farmer neighbor of his in Concord name, Edmund Hosmer, whom he often sees on his walks to Walden, Hosmer's farm lay along the route. And Hosmer says, here's this plan for Book Farm. And he says, wait, you're saying that everybody should earn the same wage? That's a crazy idea, said Hosmer. Look at my kids. If I tell them that they all get the same thing, they won't do any work here. I got to give them incentives. I have to give my workers incentives. So Emerson says, well, I talked to a real farmer. He says, your idea is never going to work. So I don't really want to do this, but maybe I could try to have greater equality in my home. Maybe I could ask my servants not to view themselves as domestic servants, but they could sit at the table and have dinner with us. We could all share equally. Guess how much the servants liked the idea of sitting at the table with Mr. Emerson. That mm -hmm. idea didn't last very long. So Emerson um, basically comes down to the view that to reform the individual, you need individual methods, one person at a time. Thoreau, here's a plan for, for Brook Farm, and he says, you know, Basically, he'd rather keep bachelor's board in hell than go to your heaven. Emerson looks at Brook Farms plan and says, this is like a transcendental hotel, transcendentalist hotel, but it's no means to greater development of the individual. And that's a key thing about Emerson and Thoreau. Um, neither of them saw real positive virtue in cooperation and the collective effort. When Emerson looked at the political parties of the day, he saw 
mass organizations seeking in the new democratic system of party politics of Whigs versus Democrats. What does he see? He sees a party organizer seeking to amass as many votes as possible who looked at individuals, not as individuals, but simply as what interest group were they part of and how could they be added to the long list of names who would go and vote the party's cause or people who would donate money to, to help the, the party go forward. When he looked at voluntary associations, he saw great benevolent societies which um, were either engaged in petition campaigns to get uh, one law or another passed by a state legislature or Congress, or who sought to gather contributions so that they could buy um, Bibles and distribute them for free to missionaries to give out in the East Indies or elsewhere. Um, temperance organizations that pressured people to take the pledge not to drink. Every one of these organizations, as Emerson saw them, were large-scale bureaucratic collective organizations that were the basis of a mass society in which the individual would be submerged. Brook Farm was, in effect, another uh, variant of the emphasis upon the collective rather than the individual. Sadly, what Emerson couldn't see is a collaborative effort, cooperative activity, ways in which we're interdependent with one another could be satisfying in their own right and could serve the cause of democracy and equality. For Emerson, they were too often opposed. He didn't really know how to combine egalitarian commitments to individual growth with institutions and interdependence. He also didn't know how to do that nor did Ezra Ripley with his ideology of interdependence in a society that was pluralistic. The world of Ezra Ripley in interdependence was one of hierarchy and homogeneity. The United States in Concord moved into a world of democracy and diversity, but it didn't really know how to do that with a cooperative activity that could still respect the individual. And that challenge is still one we face today. Interesting. Thank you so much. Um, so how did Emerson ultimately reconcile his arguments in the 1844 anti-slavery and equal rights lecture for the Middlesex County Anti-Slavery Society with his previous national lectures, as well as his newfound appreciation of commercial agriculture? Um, and then also, if you can add on Thoreau, how did Thoreau become involved in anti-slavery? Well, simple answer is he never did reconcile <laughs> that contradiction. <laughs> um, I think we're combining a couple of things here. Emerson, when he comes to a, espouse the cause of abolitionism, holds forth a view that Massachusetts needs to defend the rights of its citizens and to do so in a principled way. He doesn't really adopt a critique of society into those early abolitionist statements, at least a critique of Massachusetts society. So 
second thing you ask about is his lecture, The Young American, which is given around the same time as his um, address um, to the Anti-Slavery Society on the occasion of West Indian emancipation. And it, it, the lecture of the Young American is often posed a problem for people. There was a movement called Young American that he's tapping into. And that's actually led by um, John L. O'Sullivan and others who were strong supporters of the Democratic Party and of the Mexican War and of territorial expansion, who um, advocate for an America from coast to coast and even uh, capturing a lot of land from Mexico uh, while begging the question of the expansion of the empire of slavery. When Emerson gives a lecture called The Young American, he imagines a country settled from coast to coast, but doesn't advocate war as a means of doing so and territorial seizure. He imagines instead the dynamic forces of the society in the North will lead to the vast expansion across the continent to the West. Interestingly, while he's imagining that Yankee energy will come to dominate the continent without war or territorial seizure, he links the expansion to an ex expansion of agriculture across the continent with no awareness of the expropriation of native peoples from their ancient grounds. Instead, Emerson celebrates the plow, turning up the Great Plains, turning up the grasses throughout the Midwest, uh, expanding everywhere. Um, and he does so with no hint of an awareness of any of the environmental consequences. So you might think, this is a guy who's just holding forth a manifest destiny. And then he turns and he draws on his experience in Concord and he says, well, actually, you look at back countries in Massachusetts, even on Concord's borders, you find a lot of degraded pig farms with slovenly people caught in depression. Where do they come from? This is why actually the best and the brightest, the smartest and most ambitious on the farms in the Massachusetts countryside are all leaving for the towns and the cities where they can uh, exercise their ambitions, make great fortunes, lead in politics and society. And who stays behind? They're degraded, uneducated, lazy, younger brothers and sisters. And so Emerson in the Young American Lecture is actually urging those who succeed in the towns and cities to come back to the countryside, use the train, commute into their jobs in the city, but upgrade the land. And he's in effect saying, when I imagine farms spreading across the continent, I'm imagining progressive farms whose owners have listened to the agricultural society, who have gone through the reform schools of Concord, who've listened to the lectures at the Lyceum, who've adopted the best practices of the day, and who manage these vital, lively farms and carry 
small farming on the best progressive principles across the continent. What I realized as I read Emerson's lecture, The Young American, is how much he thinks dialectically. He's not only looking towards the future of the West, he's thinking about who's leaving the East. And how do you make sure that the East doesn't suffer such an exodus of young people that it all decays while you transfer all the problems of farming in the East to the New West? Emerson wants to see a rejuvenated and reformed rural, small town, but progressive world propagate itself across the continent without slavery, but also without native people and without the very native people whose homes in Georgia he sought to defend when he denounced the um, uprooting of the Cherokee Indians and their forced migration on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma without native people and without any concern for the environmental consequences. So Emerson is at one and the same time embracing anti-slavery, imagining a free America of thriving small towns, but imagining also the disappearance of native peoples and evading entirely the conflict that the young American will give rise to. So for our final question, please let's, let's sort of arrived at it here. Let's discuss uh, Walden uh, briefly, okay? How did uh, Emerson's purchase of Walden Pond and the Pine Grove, um, how did that res result in uh, the invitation to Thoreau to live by the, by the, by the pond um, in order to, quote, meet the facts of life? Um, and, and why, would, why would Thoreau blame the condition of industrial labor in the U.S. and the laborers themselves? while advancing his own practices of economy and bean cultivation? Well, Emerson claims that he was on a walk to Walden when he noticed that there was a public auction going on of a piece of land that a man named uh, Tommy Wyman had occupied until his recent death in the Walden woods. And uh, as he talked with the auctioneer, uh, Emerson said, okay, I'll buy it. I don't buy the claim that it was a spur of the moment decision because auctions had to be publicly advertised in the newspaper. And I wouldn't be surprised if Emerson didn't in fact deliberately go out there intending to buy the land. But land around Walden was becoming desirable because the railroad was uh, being built. It came to Concord in uh, June of 1844 and um, there was a growing demand for uh, wood, for um, fireplaces and for construction and for fueling the railroad. And uh, Walden Woods were among the last huge tracts of woodland in the town. Um, by 1850, only one out of every 10 acres in Concord was in forest. So it was not a bad investment to buy up woodlots in, uh, around Walden. Um, at the same time, uh, Thoreau was at a kind of impasse in his life. Um, he 
He graduated from Harvard. He'd been a um, grammar school master in Concord for a brief time before quitting. Uh, he kept a private academy with his brother John for a couple of years until John became ill and um, they gave up the school. Thoreau lived in Emerson's house as a handyman, uh, babysitter, uh, but also with advantages of using Emerson's library, of meeting his intellectual friends who came to Concord to visit, and of working with him on the Dial, the Transcendentalist uh, magazine, uh, which first edited by Margaret Fuller, was later then put in Emerson's charge, and it published uh, uh, several pieces by, by Thoreau. Thoreau wanted to be a writer, and Emerson tried to uh, help him out in, in this ambition by arranging for Thoreau to have a job on Staten Island with Emerson's brother. He would be a tutor to um, Emerson's nephew and um, be close enough to Manhattan that Thoreau could take the ferry and um, um, seek out publishers and magazine editors in um, Manhattan, Gotham, the emerging publishing capital of the United States. That didn't work out. Thoreau comes back to Concord. He's still really not clear now what he's going to do. He works in the family pencil factory. He's um, going to end up earning a lot uh, of his living as a surveyor of woodlots um, for real estate um, uh, projects. And he's thrashing about. And he's always dreamed of living by the shores of a pond. His friends say to him, if you're gonna eat yourself alive, go live in the woods and devour yourself entirely and see what happens. And so um, very quickly by, uh, in spring of 1845, Thoreau forms his plan and he's soon building a house um, with help from some of his friends. And by July of 1845, July 4th by accident, he says, probably the same accident that led to the dedication of the monument on July 4th, 1837, he comes to live by the pond. And he's there for two years, two months, and two days, during which time he's drafted his book A Week on the Concord Merrimack, done one draft of what will be the book Walden, um, gone to jail for a night, um, and really developed his point of view. And we'll end here with the coming around to your final question, which is how is it he's blaming the conditions of industrial labor on the laborers themselves? I wouldn't say he's blaming them in the way that say a factory owner would blame them for spending their, their low wages on drink and dissipation. So I taking up a different problem. He's really saying, how do you live ethically in conformity with your conscience in a world whose framework you can't control? How do you live justly in a society where the government seeks to make you complicit in its injustices? You know, in resistance to civil government, they say we think of it civil disobedience. He says, the government makes you pay taxes, and so you have to labor to earn the money to pay the taxes, which will fund the war you don't agree with. So how can you live a life in which the government, corporations, the society can't get a purchase on? It's not so much that I think Thoreau believed that one person by himself can be the lever of change in society as a whole. 
He does invoke that ideal. What he is really dealing with is, what do you do as an individual? How do you live morally? How do you wake up in the morning and stare at yourself in the mirror in a world of slavery and the exploitation and expropriation of native peoples in the world of the exploitation of Irish laborers? How do you wake up and look at yourself in the mirror and say, I do not want to be an agent of injustice. What Thoreau is laying out in Walden is how you can live in such a way as to earn your subsistence, have your own housing, and still cultivate your higher self, still have access to books, to friends, and the spiritual self within you without selling out. You know, in a sense, coming back to the language of the 1960s, Thoreau doesn't want to be a sellout. He wants to live decently and morally. The only way he can do that is through a way of life that facilitates his independence. Again, he couldn't conceive of collective effort as being positive in, in itself, though that's not entirely the case. He liked the Lyceum. He spoke there. He had faith that an individual acting with conscience could stir up and summon other people to follow their own consciences. And he knew in his mind that in each of our consciences at the bottom is hostility to slavery, hostility to inequality, hostility to oppression. So that he could, if he could inspire through a single act, others to feel their conscience and act on their own beliefs, one by one, maybe the society would change. But the key thing is not to be an instrument of injustice. The key thing is to wake up each morning there is more day to dawn. The sun is but a morning star, he said. To wake up each morning and to know that life starts anew. And each day, you can realize yourself and act morally in the very same acts. If you can live deliberately and not through quiet desperation. Thank you for responses today, Professor. Um, I, I have one follow-up question. What's going on with you next? Are there any uh, future projects? I know you're emeritus, but um, are you doing any more work on the Transcendentalists? I'll let you stay tuned. I've had enough to say today. All right, that sounds good. Um, so uh, the book is The Transcendentalists and Their Worlds by uh, Professor Robert Gross, um, published earlier this year. Um, thank you, Professor Gross, for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, so this is your host, Ryan Tripp. This has been a this is a production of the New Books Network, um, the New Books and History channel. Again, this is your host, Ryan Tripp. Please tune in next time. <laughs>